Welcome back, everyone. I am Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. Today, I'm remembering my veterinary school days when my three step cycle of knowledge of learn it, do it, teach it metamorphosed into the do it stage. In veterinary school, my innocent dreams of being an animal doctor turned into a scientific focus. The same thing happened to Puff's world when Jackie Paper grew up. Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea Frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali Little Jackie Paper Loved that rascal puff Brought him strings and sealing wax And other fancy stuff Oh, Puff the magic dragon Lived by the sea And frolicked in the autumn mist In a land called Hanali Puff the magic dragon Lived by the sea And frolicked in the autumn mist In a land called Together they would travel on a boat with pillowed sail. Jackie kept the lookout perched on Puff's gigantic tail. Noble kings and princes would bow whene'er they came. Princes would lower their flag when Puff roared out his name. Oh, Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea. And frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali. Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea. And frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali. A dragon lives forever, but not so little boys. Painted rings and giants' wings make way for other toys. One gray night it happened, Jackie Paper came no more. Puff that mighty dragon, he ceased his fearless roar. His head was bent in sorrow, green scales fell like rain. Puff no longer came to play along fairy lane. Without his lifelong friend, Puff could not be brave. So Puff, that mighty dragon, sadly slipped into his cave. Oh, Puff, the magic dragon, lived by the sea, and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali. Puff, the magic dragon, lived by the sea, and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali. My four years of focused learning were exciting and challenging. I was excited when I was able to use my hard-earned scientific foundation to help animals, and also challenged as I stumbled more than once in my case management. Chapter 16. Vet School Experiences Veterinary school lasts four years. 
When I attended the vet school at UC Davis, the first three years were mainly academics, and except for a freshman anatomy lab and a sophomore surgery lab, there was limited hands-on experience with the physical aspect of veterinary medicine. The first two years of the curriculum happened on Davis's main campus in historical Herring Hall, where I had had my interview. The main room displayed pictures of each graduating class. I remember finding Doc Seeley and Doc Walton's young faces in the photos. Unless the university has moved them elsewhere, I know my picture is also on the wall. During our junior year, the class locations changed to lecture halls near the newer Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital, located towards the southwestern edge of campus. When we became seniors, we went to the Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital, VMTH, full-time. The hospital had two levels. The first floor housed the large animal diagnostic areas, as well as the pathology and lab departments on the ground floor, which made it easy for a person to go to the various barns that held the horse and food animal patients. The second floor was for the small animal aspect of veterinary medicine. There were exam rooms, surgery rooms, ICU care sites, and the kennels for dogs, cats, and the like. In spite of the lack of animal interaction during these first years, I could feel my inner confidence developing, and my summer job rekindled the hands-on excitement. Between my freshman and sophomore year of vet school, I worked as an x-ray technician upstairs in the small animal portion of the UCD clinic. It was the same work I had done at Grand Avenue. In the next summer between sophomore and junior years, I remodeled a house I co-owned with Martha. But by the time my junior school ended, I was worn out with remodeling, and Martha and I were having difficulties with our relationship. Now the house was as unfinished as our relationship. I realized I needed that weekly recharge I used to feel when I jumped into Dr. Seeley's truck each Saturday morning. I wanted to work on real animals. So I signed up for a summer curriculum. It consisted of food animal medicine and surgery for four weeks and was followed by four more weeks of equine ambulatory. It was precisely the experience I was expecting. Both of these services embraced a let's learn together attitude toward their respective cases. With background support from the interns, the students were encouraged to work up the animals on their own. Once the student outlined the possible diagnostics and treatments, the interns and other clinicians guided this thought process toward an optimal outcome. I loved learning this way. This was in-your-face learning, a mix of book knowledge we already had with hands-on execution of that knowledge. I was put in charge of a 2,000-pound bull with a bacterium called Actinomyces infecting its jawbone. The bacteria is a frequent barnyard denizen, but becomes a nightmare when it enters a cut in the animal's mouth. Once the infection gets established in the jawbone, it is near impossible to cure. Because of the hardness of the bone and its inherent resistance, the bug is impossible to control with any of the standard antibiotics. I learned iodine is the only active medication for actinomycosis. It kills bacteria, yeast, and fungus. My grandma always had a tincture of that dreaded methylate stinging solution. She'd corner me and paint a brown spot on the sore, proclaim I was healed, and send me back outside. How does iodine work? I asked, although I really should have known the answer. I'd already taken pharmacology. But iodine as a healing agent somehow slipped my mind. Iodine kills single-celled organisms by combining with the amino acid tyrosine on their outer cell membranes, Dr. McClintock said. These tyrosine complexes make up a part of the bacterial cell wall, and for some reason, iodine has a strong affinity for tyrosine, forming an instant attraction and attaching to the molecule the moment it recognizes the molecule on the surface of the actinomyces cell wall. 
As soon as the iodine molecules attach to tyrosine, they rupture the cell wall, killing the bacteria. Most antibiotics don't kill actinomyces, but iodine does. We pack the bull's lesion with iodine-soaked tampons to kill the bacteria from the outside, and we also injected iodine into the bloodstream to see if the hard-to-get areas of the infection are treated more efficaciously by bloodborne delivery of the iodine. I appreciated the concept and was excited to be the one to dispense the scientific medicine directly into the vein. Now the blood supply would bathe the affected tissue in iodine. I helped Doc administer the initial dose on the first day and was set to repeat the injection the next. Catching the bull in the stanchions, he could still swing his head from side to side. I needed to put nose tongs to immobilize his head, a potentially dangerous action, not a right way to give a shot. Pulling a set from my back pocket, I unwound its attachment rope and opened the jaws of the tool. Tracking the unwilling head as it swung to the right and then to the left, I waited for the perfect moment. Taking my time, inching closer to that septum between both nostrils, ready to push the ball of the nose tongs inside the nostrils, steady, steady, now. After snagging the soft part of the fellow's snout, I tied the nose pliers in such a way as to tweak the bull's neck to expose the jugular vein. The beast was bellowing with an open mouth. His head pulled steadily to the left, revealing his right jugular vein to me. I loaded the syringe with iodine, administering an entire ounce of the colorless iodine medicine slowly and carefully. I knew it was in the blood vessels because blood rushed into the chamber when I pulled the syringe stopper backward. The next morning I was eager to repeat the same process, relieved to see he was not thinking about the tongs. He was easy to catch up that morning. Hopefully he would remain this pliable throughout the next few days of medications. I pulled the large syringe from my coveralls pocket and used my left thumb as a blood vessel stopper, pushing low on the neck to make the jugular rise. Seeing the tumescent bulge, I jabbed a large bore needle into the vein, pulling back a little to make sure I was in all the way. Lots of blood refluxed into the syringe, so I knew I was in the correct spot. Now I pushed the medicine in slowly, thinking how neat everything was. The bull bellowed loudly once and collapsed, crumbling onto the concrete with its neck still caught between the bars. My heart in my mouth, I ran to the medicine room in the barn and drew up a syringe of epinephrine. I remembered Dr. Seeley had done this when he had a horse going to cardiac arrest after he had anesthetized it to perform a castration. In both cases, the results were the same. Dead patients. The epinephrine didn't help. I couldn't revive the bull even after pulling his head free and dropping to my knees to do chest compressions. I felt terrible about the outcome of the case. This was my first fatality. But I didn't take it personally. I was still operating under my teacher's decisions, and the clinician told me the drug was experimental. I did feel sorry for the bull, though. The way the science experiment went to shit so quickly. Today, the actinomyces infection, called lumpy jaw, is treated with a measured dose of sodium iodide injected into the jugular vein. It's the same stuff I was pumping in. But the carrier at the time was less purified, evidently causing an anaphylactic reaction in this individual. At least, that's what Dr. McCulloch decided. We drove to a dairy to preg check cows. The cows were caught in the stanchions munching hay when we arrived. Doc had us put on the long rectal palpation gloves and follow him as he palpated each cow. We were searching for a baby by feeling the uterus. Rectal palpation is the process of using a gloved hand, allowing the palpator to grab and pinch the uterus and ovaries. Following a specific sequence, 
He grabbed the uterus to see if the cow was pregnant, as he explained different ways to determine how far along the baby was, and Mama was marked with a P using a fat, oversized orange crayon. If the cow was open, which means not pregnant, he palpated each ovary to see if the follicles were developing, which indicates the cow is coming into heat, and Doc would mark her appropriately for artificial insemination the next few days. We followed after Dr. McCulloch, pushing our arms into the warm and dark cavity to feel for the changes he described. The dairy owner was quite pleasant, playing music and offering coffee as we worked. When we finished, he handed out ice cream snacks. Equine ambulatory was enjoyable for me, too. Each morning, three students and the intern gathered inside the ambulatory office drinking coffee to review where we were going that day. Then we headed off to do our calls, just as I had done with Dr. Seeley. If there were no calls after lunch, and there usually weren't, the intern usually stopped at one of the pool houses scattered in the backcountry, so we could spend our downtime playing pool and drinking cold beer. It was an exceptional situation. I congratulated myself on my excellent choice for a profession. That fall, I began my final year in school, spending all my time at the clinic rotating through different departments according to my interests. My first rotation was equine reproduction. It was unfortunate timing for me, because fall is the time of the year that horses do not reproduce. The mare's ovaries are shut down from September through January. This should be the time all the small animal types rotate through. In equine surgery, the work habits I learned in previous rotations came back to plague me. It was hard for me because there was nothing to do other than a few quick procedures in the early part of the day. I do not handle boredom well. I decided I could better spend my time elsewhere and often left the equine area when things got dull similar to behaviors I started with my summer rotations. When things were slow, I split. Equine surgery rotation was much more a top-to-bottom command sequence. The clinicians told the residents their jobs, the residents relayed orders to the interns, and the students were there to watch and be in awe of the practice of equine medicine. No matter what wasn't happening, I needed to be present while I was in this rotation. During the rotation, I spent one overnight a week in the horse barns, sleeping in a small room between the treatment episodes. I was also there to help with after-hours intakes. A junior veterinary student was assigned to assist me for the first four hours of my shift when it was time for evening meds. About 7 p.m. one night, my assistant and I were interrupted in our medication duties by an admit. A horse experiencing colic came in. The junior was a small fellow, and we were having a pleasant evening. He followed me into the treatment area where we found the horse standing in the stocks. The horse, a sorrel mare, was now standing relaxed and quiet. The intern must have given her a tranquilizer, I said, expecting a colicking mare, antsy and agitated. But she was standing still with her head hanging low, and her feet glued to the floor, a sure sign she'd been sedated. I don't know where the owner or the intern went to, probably to fill out some paperwork to arrange payment and treatment options. For some reason, I felt like I would be doing the clinicians a favor by jump-starting the workup. Well, gee, I decided. Here, take the lead rope. Why don't you hold the mare while I look for a sleeve? I asked. Handing my assistant the line, I found a rectal palpation sleeve and began to lube it up. What are you doing? The student asked. I'm palpating the horse to see where the colic is coming from, I explained authoritatively. Are you allowed to do that? We've done this before in equine lab. I replied, carefully advancing my loop glove into the horse's rectum. Unable to figure out what was going on, I pulled out and stripped the glove off, shaking my head. I can't feel anything, I admitted. Then I had another idea. I would place a jugular catheter in for the intern. 
The horse evidently was going through the admission process, and I figured I could be helpful. I shaved the hair over the jugular vein on the right side of the neck, put on sterile gloves, unsheathed jugular catheter, and attempted to place the catheter inside the jugular vein. However, this was my first attempt to catheterize a jugular vein, and I went in too far. Instead of a one and a half inch steel needle I used on the bull for a temporary infusion, I employed a six inch long Teflon catheter, which could be left inside the jugular for a few days. I went into the vein pushing the six inch long metal stiletto deep, deeper, even deeper, waiting for blood to come back. That would mean I was inside a vessel. Once inside the vein, I pulled the long metal stylet out, leaving the Teflon catheter in the vein. At least, that's what I thought I did. Oh. Oh, I mumbled as the surrounding neck started to swell with blood. The swelling was unexpected. It meant I nicked the carotid artery. The carotid artery lies right underneath the jugular vein in that area of the horse's neck. In my inexperienced hands, the long catheter had advanced directly through the jugular and punctured the carotid artery. I knew I was in the carotid because the higher pressure of the artery caused blood to leak into the surrounding tissue, and the neck began to swell. The swelling continued to enlarge the growing tumescence obliterating the typical architecture of the muscles and jugular vein. I waited for help before proceeding further. I had done all I could to help get this case started. The intern panicked the moment he saw the rapidly expanding bump on his patient's neck. He called up the resident who called up the clinician. The intern waited 20 minutes for the resident. The junior student, my assistant, disappeared, not wanting to be part of this circus. Ignoring me, the two clinicians focused on placing a new catheter on the other side of the neck while I stood there feeling like the young fool that I was. After setting a catheter in the correct place, the mare was set up with her meds. I was brought to a corner and told I was to have a meeting with the clinician the next morning. At that meeting, I was told I had taken decisions into my hands inappropriately. The clinician was also angry with me for leaving early when I was bored. For my transgressions, I was sentenced to spend 14 days of my Christmas vacation reworking the rotation. I made sure I did not leave early during those two weeks. These setbacks at school were only temporary. I still had high expectations of my profession and looked forward to graduating in June. Practicing veterinary medicine is a perfect combination for me, employing both physical and mental tasks, and the task was different every day. In general practice, the cases vary widely, so I didn't usually become bored with the daily routine. I remained committed to being the best vet I could be. Once the large animal rotations finished, I went to the upstairs of the VMTH to learn the aspects of small animal medicine, spending the rest of my senior year in small animal anesthesia, intensive care, surgery, internal medicine, radiology, dermatology, and ophthalmology. I even did a brief stint in the exotics ward, where we took care of birds, rodents, and reptiles. But I felt this was a waste of time. Who would want to spend their time and energy trying to treat such weird animals? During the spring, it was time to take the national and California exams in veterinary medicine practice, my last step in becoming a legally practicing veterinarian. I passed these exams and looked forward to working in my new profession as soon as I graduated. End of chapter. Joe Gilia has a great bull story he learned from a Vermont fella. Ezra, are you going to vote for Silas, for select man? No, no, why not? Well, why not? He's the best man running. Well, I'll tell you a little something about Silas Hissett that not many people know.
Well, for five years ago, I had myself a ball. God, you were a beautiful ball. But one day that bull of mine come down constipated. So I went to the vet to get some laxative for him. And when I got back the fam, I searched all over for me funnel. But I couldn't find it. So I straightened out me World War I bugle. And I shoved it up my bull's ass and poured the laxative on down him. God, you could just see the relief spreading across my bull's face. <laughs> but he got away from me there in the pen. No, I didn't get the bugle out. Well, after four or five minutes, that laxative begun to work pretty good, you know. And when it did, that bull of mine, he started to fat. When he'd fat, he'd blow that bugle and it'd scare him some. <laughs> he got to running round that that uh, pen, you know, there, just fatting and blowing that bugle. And the more he did, the more scared he got. And he broke through the fence, the rail fence, and he got out on the street, onto Elm Street, headed on down towards the river, just a fattening blowing that bugle, fattening blowing that bugle. Well, Silas was running the drawbridge at the time, and he heard my bull coming, just fattening blowing that bugle. God damn it. And he raised the drawbridge, and that bull of mine fell in the river and drowned. And I'll be goddamned if I'll vote for a man who can't tell the difference between the River Queen and my bull with a hunt up its ass. <laughs> Here comes the sun here comes the sun, I said, it's alright Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter Little darling, it seems like years since it's been here Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I said it's alright Little darling I see the ice is slowly melting Little darling It seems like years since it's been clear Here comes the sun Here comes the sun I said
Thank you, Brian and Mary. Your songs quicken my focus, warm my heart, and bring a smile to my face. And thank you, folks, for listening. You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick my books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book, or an ebook, as well as an 11 disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. Tune in next week to follow more tales of the very soon to be ADHD veterinarian. Mm-hmm.